Welcome back to the London Futurists podcast. Our guest today is Riaz Shah. Until recently, Riaz was a partner at EY, where he was for 27 years, specializing in technology and innovation. Towards the end of his time at EY, he became a professor for innovation and leadership at Holt International Business School, where he leads sessions with senior executives of global companies. In 2016, Riaz took a one-year sabbatical to open the One Degree Academy, a free school in a disadvantaged area of London. There's an excellent TEDx talk from 2020 about how that happened and about how to prepare for the very uncertain future of work. Riaz, welcome to the London Futurists podcast. Thanks very much, Callum and David. Look forward to our chat. Thanks so much for joining us, Riaz. Riaz, why don't we start with your TEDx talk? We'll put a link on the show notes. And the remarkable statement by a cheeky stranger that led to the creation of the One Degree Academy. He said, you need to see me tomorrow for lunch because I've got something to tell you that might change your life. Tell us he said that to you and what happened next and what's different about One Degree Academy. Yeah, it really did change my life. There was a 29-year-old I met at a party and he said that to me at the end of the party. I hadn't talked to him at all. The next day I did meet him for lunch and he told me that he was a director at Citibank and what he really cared about was the lives of 16-year-olds in disadvantaged communities where schools had given up on them. He said, you need to get involved with my mentoring charity. We call it One Degree because one small intervention over a weekend means a big change in the direction of their lives. And he was doing like 20 weekend workshops every year for a different set of kids, different set of 16-year-olds, help them pass their GCSEs. I said to him, I didn't really want to get involved. I'm really focused on technology and entrepreneurship. That's what I do. I don't really do education. But he was so cheeky and charming that I, I kind of agreed. And I went and I saw the impact he was having. And he and I became really good friends. He called me Uncle Riaz. I saw him very regularly. He lived around the corner from me in London. A few months later, he became ill. On his hospital bed, he said to me, come here and hold my hand, Uncle Riaz. So I held his hand and he said, I want you to promise me two things. One, that you'll take over the one degree mentoring program if something happens to me. And I said, don't worry about it. You'll get better. And yes, I would. And he said, number two, the government just announced this new idea called free schools, where anybody with an idea about how to create an innovative new school can propose that to the Department of Education and can get them funded. And I want you, he said, to create the One Degree Academy, aim at the same kind of kids who society's forgotten about, and set up the school. And I was like, I can't do that. I don't have any kids. I don't know anything about education. I don't know anybody in government. I don't even know any teachers. I don't even have any kids. And he said, okay, promise me that you'll try. I said, okay, I'll try. And eight days later, he died of a rare form of cancer. About a month later, I was with his 40 friends at his wake, and I asked them who would help me with the mentoring program, and four hands went up. And those people are still involved today. And we've helped about almost 900 kids pass their GCSEs. And then I said, who's going to help me with the One Degree Academy? And nobody's hand went up. And they all said, we're really busy. You're really busy. Just do the mentoring program. That's enough. And I said, but I made a promise. So for the next two years, I asked anybody I knew 
if they knew anything about free schools and nobody did because I didn't hang out with those kind of people. And eventually I did meet one person and then through that another person, another person. And eventually we had a team of 10 people and me, 10 experts in education and me. And we got together a proposal, went through all sorts of hardships, finally got our school, which opened in December 2016. Three years later, we were reviewed in our first Ofsted and became outstanding. And earlier this year in July, we did our SATs for our 11-year-olds, and we are in the top 2% of schools in the UK. Are you covering the same syllabus as most schools? Well, you kind of have to cover the same topics because the kids have to pass the same exams. We can't offer our kids completely different set of exams. But it's the way in which we get there, David, is quite different. Our big focus is on core basic knowledge in maths, English, science, etc. And then on top of that is really about the values. Values like curiosity, values like teamwork and responsibility. We probably spend, I don't know, quarter of our time, 20% to 25% of our time talking about our values every single day. And I think it's those values that will put these kids in good stead as they grow into this very uncertain world. How do you do that, Riz? How do you talk about values for a quarter of the day? That sounds hard not to make very boring. Yeah, it's, it's surprising. I'd love for both of you or anybody to come and visit us because I think we do do a number of things different. We do about 30 things differently than any other school I've been to. One thing, for example, that one of our values is all about curiosity and always wanting to learn. If a six-year-old walks into a classroom, they'll see a little A4 outside and it will say, this week, Maria, the teacher, is working on the following. Pause more before answering questions. Every single kid will see what that teacher is working on. And so every single kid gets inspired by the fact that the teacher is still learning. And next week, there will be another Maria is working on. So every week, it's one degree, one small thing at a time. Every week, Maria is trying to improve. It's that sort of thing. That's what I mean about focusing on values every single day. Every single day, we give out values awards to our kids, and they give out values awards to each other. The thing is, if I think back in my school days, I hated my school. It was in a council estate in Luton. I tried to avoid schools all my life because I hated my school so much. When you walk into our school, the overwhelming feeling that you get just by walking in is one of love. That's a very different feeling that I get when I walk into most schools. Is it your hope that other schools will, degree by degree, change to adopt some of your style and emphasis on values? We don't think we've got all the answers. We think we've got the answers suitable for us. In fact, there are about 20 schools in the UK who have a higher level of deprived kids and have achieved better results than we have. So we're really interested in learning from them. What is it they're doing? They've got even higher levels of deprivation, but they're doing really well. But one of the things we do is, as well as us visiting other schools, we get other schools to visit us and we try and learn off each other. I think quite a lot of the education sector has changed in your direction since the days when we were at school. When I was at school, if you'd suggested something like that to the headmaster, I think he would have thrown you out and sent you out with an armed guard. The school where my son went and where I was for a while a governor, 
they had a very clear value statement, which they used to talk about a lot. And I remember grit and resilience as being probably the two things that they were most keen on inculcating. They took it very seriously. The kids took it very seriously. And I was always a bit surprised that the kids weren't more cynical. Because when I was a kid, you said, this teacher is trying to learn openness or transparency or whatever. We'd have set ourselves the goal of finding ways to sabotage that. Yes. And the kids in the school were not. And obviously the kids in your school were not as well. So that's great. Yeah. That's really impressive. I'm still intrigued as to how you manage to spend a quarter of the day talking about values without it getting hectoring and boring. Well, we don't talk specifically about values. We talk about things with values throughout the day. They're just imputed, if you like. Mm. It's the way in which we ask questions of the kids, the way in which we treat kids with respect, etc. The other day I was walking through the school and this kid picked up a piece of litter on the floor and I said, why did you pick up that piece of litter? Because I didn't see you drop it. And he said, this is our value of responsibility. Impressive. And I've had four-year-olds talk to me about the value of integrity. Yeah, impressive. And, and they describe it as my friend found a one-pound coin and picked it up and gave it to the teacher. That shows integrity. Well, as David always says, this is the London Futurist podcast. So on the subject of education, how do you think it's going to change in the next 10 or 20 years? And how do you think AI is going to change it, among other things? I don't know. I think we're still working it out, as far as I can tell, whether it's in corporate learning or university learning or all the way down to primary school, like One Degree Academy. I think we're all still trying to work it out. One thing is clear, those schools that tried to ban the use of, say, ChatGPT, I think that's just crazy. That's like trying to ban calculators. And I think we need to figure out how to use it better. One thing I worry about is the lack of critical thinking in the future, that if people just use these systems and these systems give them the answer all the time, that they stop thinking for each other. And actually, there was a recent study done by BCG of their consultants. They looked at almost 200 consultants, and they found that the weaker performers got much better, the stronger performers got a little better. So everybody's performance improved by about 40% on average. But the really interesting thing was the lack of diversity in the answers that the consultants using ChatGPT gave. That diversity went down by 40%. So I think that just indicates to me that if you're talking about BCG consultants, you know, some of the brightest kids in the land, if their diversity of ideas fell by 40%, what happens to kids at schools? <laughs> I really worry about that, that we'll just end up in a sort of blamange of ideas. There's an alternative vision, though, isn't there, that at the moment, education necessarily consists of one teacher and somewhere between, you know, 15, if you're lucky, and you go to a private school and your parents pay a lot of money for it, or 30 students if you go to a normal school, Yes. which is an appalling ratio. Yes. How can the teacher possibly get much into the head of 30 kids? Whereas when you've got GPT-6, not what we have now, but the next iteration, perhaps, you have effectively a teacher for each kid. And a teacher becomes like a mentor for each kid. I like the analogy that we all become Alexander the Great with our own personal Aristotle, because Alexander the Great famously had Aristotle as his tutor. Yes. So we all have a personal tutor who's our mentor that knows everything that we know, and they know what we need to know next in the syllabus, and they know the best way that we learn, the way we learn best. I had a very interesting thought that at the moment, people are worried that GPT-4 and other models will help kids to plagiarize. In future, 
they will stop them plagiarizing because when the kid produces a piece of work, GPT-4 will say, you know what? That's nothing like your normal work. You didn't do that, did you? And they'll stop the kids plagiarizing. And how we get from here to there, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I visited a school in New York a few years back, and it was called the Blue School for very rich parents, $40,000 a term or something. And there were two teachers for every six kids. So one teacher for every three kids. Wow. And you could see those kids rapidly improving. So I would love to get to that. We necessarily in the UK end up with 30 to a classroom. The other thing is I think that there are a lot of middle-range universities that are going to be in trouble. I don't think the Harvards and the MITs are going to be in trouble in the future or London School even. I think the universities that will struggle will be this huge range of schools below that top tier. Because what happens then is if you want to learn, let's say, business strategy, you're learning it from the bagel guy. Bagel guy meaning best available guy locally. Why do you want to learn from the best available guy locally when you could learn from the best available guy or gal globally? And so I think if you can democratize education by having, let's say, Michael Porter teach you business strategy and he's integrated into a GPT-4, that's much, much more compelling than learning it from some teacher who is the best available guy locally. Yeah, which you achieve with what's called flipped learning, don't you? Yes. Whereas instead of going into the class and that poor, lonely one teacher gives a lecture to 30 students and both sides of this equation are thoroughly bored by the exercise and then the students go off and do a difficult exercise at home and get completely confused and spend hours struggling and getting nowhere. Instead of that, what happens is you watch a video or in fact with LLMs, you watch an interactive performance by an avatar of Michael Porter or the best possible lecturer, the best possible speaker about the subject. And then you go into class and you do the exercises together. The students help each other because peer-to-peer learning is fantastically powerful. Yeah. And the bagel guy or girl is a mentor rather than having to give a whiz-bang best ever lecture and performance. Absolutely. And that's much easier. That's a big change, Callum, in the skill set of the teacher. Rather than the sage on the stage, it's the guide on the side. Yeah, very good. It's quite a big change. The other thing I think is that universities and MBAs need to change. And in EY, that's one of the things I wanted to do. At EY, we had 400,000 people. And I wanted to figure out how do I upskill these people on tech, whether they're a tax person in Bolivia or a consultant in New York. How do I upskill them, get them to understand AI, blockchain, cloud, etc.? And so we came up with this idea of a series of badges, which lots of corporates have. So you do a bit of learning, online learning, and you get a virtual badge. The difference was we then said, if you apply that learning in the workplace and it's signed off by your boss, then you get a higher level badge, a bronze badge, or even a silver badge if you do more. So that worked really well. And then we thought that you could combine a set of these badges and have them be credits for an MBA. And when I posed that to 10 different universities, eight of them thought I was mad. Why on earth would they accredit skills learned through virtual learning and then on-the-job experiences? Why would they accredit that? And I said, because this is where the future is. Nobody's going to want to do a two-year MBA, and by the time they finish the MBA, it might be out of date. 
this is how education needs to change. Eventually, we did end up with one university willing to do this for us. It happened to be Holt. And we launched the world's first and only tech MBA that is completely free of charge to all 400,000 people, completely flexible. They can do it over six years or six months and completely up to date, future focused, because it gets updated every six months. All the curriculum gets updated every six months. Now, launched two other degrees in analytics and sustainability. I think that's the future of corporate education is to give people credentials, whether they're small credentials like badges or a big credential like a fully accredited MBA, fully accredited master's degree in sustainability. I think that's the future of learning for big corporates as well. And I think so many universities don't get that. Very interesting. And are the students on this MBA mostly from big companies or are they from developing countries? Where are they coming from? They're all EY employees. Oh, they're all EY, okay. Yeah, and uh, about half of them are from developed countries, from London, New York, Paris, etc. And the other half are from Bolivia, Vietnam, India, etc. The number of emails I've got from people saying, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I could never afford the $40,000 of fees it takes to do an MBA all the time off to do it before. And now I've been able to do it. So we've had 260 people get their MBAs in this already. So it sounds like the satisfaction from the people going through the course. Is there any measurement of people applying this insights productively in their work? Did EY become more successful as a result of people taking that time? Yeah, so we had a look at the first 56 people who did the EY Tech MBA and compared their performance with people who hadn't got the MBA. One of the things we found is that their sales pipeline was twice as high and their likelihood to get promoted was 40% higher. I don't know where the cause and effect is because sometimes you get the best people wanting to learn more and therefore that might be the better people do the MBA, but there was this correlation. Yeah, interesting. Another subject moving on from education to jobs, natural segue. You've been thinking about the future of jobs for years now, and I know this because we met at a conference in Cyprus in October when you gave what I thought was a really excellent and thought-provoking presentation about how exponential technology growth is going to turn the world of work upside down. How do you currently see the future of jobs unfolding over, the, say, the next five to 20 years? Yeah, next five to 20 years. I'd love to know anybody who's got the answer to that question. I think we're all a bit confused right now. If you read the press, you get an equal number of articles from Goldman Sachs saying we're going to lose 300 million jobs, etc. To other articles that say, don't worry, it'll be fine. You just need to learn a few more skills. You'll be fine. I take that to mean that nobody really knows. We don't really know how this is going to work out. I don't know either. I think what we do know is that even if we don't face mass unemployment, I think that's probably inevitable eventually. But even if we don't face mass unemployment in the short term, we do face mass redeployment. It is really, really going to be important for people to upskill. So I think people who are doing learning jobs, people who are in the business of ed tech, have got a brighter future ahead of them because there's going to be a large number of people who are going to need reskilling. And I don't see many governments really taking this seriously. I think the large corporates are probably taking this more seriously right now than governments. It is interesting. You mentioned that the university had to update its curriculum every six months. People's learning 
quickly deteriorates. Their knowledge is no longer quite so relevant. So whether or not we are unemployed, the challenge is that to keep doing our job well, there's all kinds of new things we need to learn all the time. Absolutely. So continuous relearning is going to be really, really important. The thing I do in my talk is I say, well, what happens to the truck drivers right now is they get automated. Maybe we reskill them into coders. What happens when coding gets 100% automated? What do they do then? It gets quite tricky after a while. You could think that Elon Musk might be right, that he thinks a large majority of jobs will actually disappear. I'm not sure things like plumbing or electricians will disappear anytime soon. I think he's inevitably right, but it's all about time frame. Exactly. And a lot of what's important is about what happens between now and when the great unemployment does happen. And I think your main thrust of what you said is correct, that we're going to, for quite a long time, have a lot of redeployment. And I think probably not unemployment, hmm. because for a long time, and this could only be months, but probably years, AI will do what all previous technologies have done, which is to improve efficiency, which creates demand, which creates more jobs. Yes. And as long as there are some things that humans can do and machines can't do, demand is elastic. So there will be jobs for people. In fact, I think we will have as close to full employment as we've got now until we get to the point where machines can do almost everything that we can do for money, cheaper, better, and faster than us. And then quite suddenly, I suspect this will happen in months rather than years, quite suddenly there'll be a tipping point and Musk will be right and there won't be jobs for humans. And one of our big, big jobs now, and we're not doing it at all, is to think about what that post-jobs world looks like. What a world in which machines do all the jobs. Humans carry on doing work, but just don't get paid for it. We do work doing things that we like to do because it's fun. We need somehow an economy that can keep us all in lives of comfort and why not aim for the sky and have luxury in that post-jobs world. And it should be entirely possible because machines will be generating a lot of wealth. And of course, the transition, the transition is going to be really tricky, especially if we haven't thought about it properly beforehand. And Callum, both you and I talk about how most people really don't like jobs, actually. Yeah. There's a Gallup study earlier this year said only 15% of people are fully engaged at work. And we spend, what, 82,000 hours a year at work. Surely, if AI can come along or technology can come along, take away the dirty, dull, dangerous work from us, that's a good thing. Exactly. One of the great delusions is people think that the idea that machines will take all our jobs is pessimistic. It's not the idea that we have to be wage slaves forever. That's what's pessimistic. Exactly. The other thing is that in most of the developed world and increasingly in the developing world, we're seeing huge falls in fertility. A country like Italy is now down to 1.2 kids per couple, which means that within two generations, we're looking at Italy going from 60 million people to about 25 million people. That is a real, real prospect. Actually, Italy already lost 200,000 people in 2022. Japan has been losing half a million people a year for the last 15 years. So I think having fewer people of working age will offset some of the jobs that do get replaced by technology. Although I'm not sure many jobs in their entirety will get replaced, maybe admin jobs, maybe some call center jobs. I think for the majority of jobs, it will be activities that get replaced, which might mean that overall you need fewer people to do a particular job. Or maybe people will just do more interesting work in what is a rebadged version of the same job. Absolutely. 
We should probably think about the nearer future, and we're recording this conversation in the dying days of 2023, with 2024 looming and being the most important election year ever, and undoubtedly going to be an exciting year for AI. It's a really unfair question, Riaz. What would you think are the top three things? I've given you no notice of this question at all. The top three things going to happen in 2024. Do you mean in terms of the outcome of the elections? No, 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 no. In terms of AI or any other futurist thing you might want to talk about. I think we're going to get a ton more disinformation, a ton more deep fakes. And I'm seriously, seriously worried because every week something new is coming up in AI. For example, video, text to video. That is improving at a rate of knots that is surprising even somebody like me. And I've been in technology for 30 years. I think even by next year, it will get so good that it'll be really difficult to tell the difference between reality and what is not reality. I really worry about the future of democracy, actually, with all this AI. And I'm not sure that all of these AI acts that we're seeing in the US and, and Europe, for example, I'm not sure they will have that much impact. I have an unconventional view on this. I am worried about democracy. I think there's some big reasons to worry about democracy, but I don't think deepfakes, including deepfake videos, are a reason why. One of the interesting things that's been happening in the awful Gaza war is loads and loads of videos have been posted purporting to show one side or the other behaving atrociously. And bit by bit, all these videos have been shown to be either outtakes from movies or outtakes from previous wars. And what's happened is actually it's not really changing anybody's mind. We're all trained now to think, well, that's a video. I don't know its exact provenance. It's probably not true. And I think when we first see a video of Donald Trump wrestling with Joe Biden on Fifth Avenue in New York, we'll all think, well, that's a good deepfake. We're not going to believe it's true. So I don't think that is going to have as much impact as people think. Where I think those sorts of technologies will be tricky is when we're sent personalized messages as an attempt to scam money out of us. I think that's going to be pretty damaging and will get better and better. On democracy, I wish you were right, Callum, that people will be able to tell apart this stuff. But people weren't even able to tell apart the lies that people told on Brexit, lies on the side of a bus. A large group of people believed all that stuff when it was patently untrue. And all it needed was a tiny bit of research to see that it was untrue. But most people can't be bothered doing that tiny bit of research. But we didn't need deepfake or AI to persuade us of those things. It was because it was in the Daily Mail. That was why people believed that Johnson was going to get 350 million quid a week from the EU. And the fact that whatever it is, 30%, 40% of Americans still believe that the 2020 election was stolen when it's clearly not true. That's not due to social media. It's due to Fox News. But I think social media will exacerbate those things. And I think there is a large group of people who will believe those videos as they come out and will believe this deep fake stuff. I'm seriously concerned about it. And I think social media is forcing us all to be more and more in our own bubbles. I even see it with myself as I'm talking to some of my friends, some of my Israeli friends about Gaza, etc. I see myself also being stuck in my own social bubbles. The thing about advertising is that when it works well, people don't realize that they've had their views influenced by advertising. Yes. People said after Brexit, oh, I've been anti-EU all my life. I've always been opposed to the bureaucracy and the administration and power grabbing of Brussels. And they may have had these thoughts, but their views have been recreated. 
I think people are being influenced by what they see in newspapers, even though perhaps a part of their brain tells them they shouldn't be, but nevertheless, the lies are having an effect. Yes. Even though people, part of their brain knows it's a lie, and then afterwards they don't know why they've reached a certain view. It's just, oh, it's part of my makeup. One good thing I've seen on Twitter X is that when somebody does tell a blatant lie, there is a community note underneath that says, here's the actual truth. And I think that sort of thing is one way we can combat some of this stuff. Those community notes are good. And I was, along with lots of other people, highly entertained when one of Elon Musk's more dubious posts, of which they've been got a lot recently, was called out on community notes. And he claimed that community notes was being gamed by, by foreign powers. <laughs> yes. So that's one of your forecasts, that there'll be lots more misinformation, in part because AI is better at producing video that might appeal to each individual person separately. Any other thoughts on the future? I agree with Callum. Callum talks about weaponizing nostalgia, which I think is a beautiful phrase. And I think that's exactly what's happening. There's large groups of countries where we seem to be going towards these almost extremists, such as in Venezuela, such as even in the Netherlands recently. I really worry about that. We're not designed as human beings to cope with the amount of change that is happening already, let alone how much change is about to happen. And I think when all this change happens, Callum, then people do long for the days when things were better in their rose-tinted spectacles. Yeah, absolutely. I think weaponized nostalgia is a great phrase. And the good old days were not good. <laughs> we're all old enough to have been alive in the more recent versions. And uh, the 70s was terrible. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't better than today. So how are we countering? How can society counter this weaponizing of nostalgia? Is it possible to paint a positive picture of the future, which involves change, but isn't so disruptive, isn't so alienating? Yeah, I think it needs more honest politicians and also better policies to help people, for example, reskill and see that they can get away from doing this terrible job to doing a much more interesting job. But I just don't see that happening outside of a few places like Singapore, which isn't really the bastion of democracy, but they are doing some of the right things. I don't see that, for example, coming out of our government here in the UK. In fact, I see the opposite happening. I'm more optimistic than that. Things go in cycles. Some things go in a straight line, some things go in an exponential line, and some things go in cycles. And the honesty of politicians and journalists goes in cycles. There have been many periods in the past when we've had self-serving, corrupt politicians who are lying all the time. There's also been many periods in the past when, yeah, some politicians were corrupt and they all lied a little bit, but basically they were all really trying to do a good job, and so were the journalists. We've been going through a period, certainly in the UK and in lots of other countries, where we've had an appalling crop of politicians in charge for the last decade or so. And journalists have been behaving extremely badly, lying their heads off. I mean, the Telegraph and the Mail and some of the others, they're jokes. They're not newspapers anymore. They're just propaganda sheets and peddlers of lies. But I do think that the circle will turn again, the wheel will turn again, and we'll get a more honest and sensible, decent bunch of politicians, partly because we'll demand it. The political balance around the world at the moment is at a very interesting point of balance. On the one hand, we've had Poland, which has thrown out its rogues. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Viktor Orban in Hungary is still doing very, very well. And Putin and his lies and many others around the world that are not so good. The UK is almost certain to throw out our current bunch of rogues. Yes. 
and give them very few votes and we'll have an entirely different crop of politicians. They're not perfect, but they're a lot better than the current ones. And maybe the world will swing in that way. Maybe it won't, but maybe it will. Some of this comes back to people being able to tell lies from reality. And that goes back to education. I think if you can teach kids at a very early age critical thinking, not only will that help them with whatever GPT-4 tells them, but it will also help them with other human beings tell them. Yeah. And I think critical thinking is a key skill to teach kids really early on. No question. And how are you doing that? Well, I think you just have to present alternatives, alternative perspectives to kids rather than saying, this is one view of the British Empire, for example. You have to present an alternative view of the British Empire, which is very different to how I learned about the British Empire when I was at school. I think it's all about teaching perspectives and saying that there are valid different perspectives to anything that's happening. So we've got time for a third quick forecast for 2024. Anything else you'd like to throw into the mix? 2024, generally, I think we're just going to see an explosion of innovation. And I think some of this will really catch the larger, bigger corporates out. I think there are going to be some big corporates that are going to be still clinging on to what has made them successful so far, rather than what could make them successful in the future. Yeah. Too many corporates fall in love with their own products, rather than falling in love with what problem they're trying to solve for the customer. And what they see is short term, they see their profits still increasing. They see themselves doing well in the short term. And they cling on to that rather than saying, actually, there's something here that could upend us. There's lots of reasons to dislike Meta and Facebook. But one thing I do like about them is they give every employee a little red book. And the first page of that little red book says, if we don't create the thing that kills Facebook, someone else will. Nice. And I love that because I think more and more corporates need to think that way. Not only where are we with our current core products, but what is the next thing that is going to kill what we're currently doing? 2024 is when we'll first start to see a number of these larger companies really, really struggle. Interesting. That sounds quite similar to Jeff Bezos's maxim that it's always day one. And when you lose that day one mentality and you become a day two company, that's when you're on your way to being toast. Yeah. Germans talk about this thing called the Einstein effect, which is you end up with success with fixed settings. The more successful you are, the harder it is for you to adapt because you just trade on doing the same things you've done before. And as a company, you end up with 50 reasons why you shouldn't change. When I talk to some of my business executives that I talk to and I show them the list of 50 reasons not to change, I ask them, how many of you have heard somebody say one of these things to you in your current company today? And every single one puts their hands up. And I say, that's okay, because those 50 reasons not to change are fine because successful companies put in this bureaucracy to keep themselves successful. They're fine if the environment isn't changing. But if the environment is changing as much as it's changing today, those 50 reasons not to change are the ones that kill your company. So I think companies need to have a very different view of innovation than a lot of them do today. And generative AI could be a development that sorts the wheat from the chaff in a way, and that most large companies have resisted its use at most levels of the company so far. But next year, it's probably going to be possible for brave companies to deploy it. 
as Microsoft and others who are used to helping companies adopt technology, make it safer and feasible. Some companies will adopt it, other companies won't, and they might make a big difference between them. Yeah. So that and GPT-5, I think we're in for an interesting year ahead. We are, indeed. We'll invite you back at the end of another year, and we can review how these forecasts have gone and what we're thinking about may happen next year and how companies can avoid being outcompeted by more innovative rivals. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us, Riaz. Thank you, David. Thank you, Riaz. Yeah, I've enjoyed it very much.